I wonder if you can sing that with sincerity of heart this morning. That, that all of your trust is in the blood of Jesus shed for you. All of it. Not some of it. Not even most of it. But all of it. Can you sing sincerely that you are hopeless apart from Jesus Christ? Are you looking away from yourself to Him this morning? That's really the question that will actually hang in the air as we think about our text this morning. If you will take a Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible in the pew in front of you or somewhere around you. And if you don't know how to navigate it, 1 Samuel, the text we will read is on page 226 of that Bible. As you're turning there, there is one uh, bit of family business that we need to take care of, and that is that Kevin Wilson, we brought, the elders recommended him last week for membership and uh, for your consideration today. Uh, it is a joy then for me to ask you to vote to receive him into our membership. Will you wave again, Kevin? Did you bring the speech you were supposed to make? He laughed, so I'm going to guess that's a no. Um, but uh, Gray Road members, if you rejoice in welcoming Kevin into our uh, church fellowship, will you, say, will you acknowledge that by saying amen? amen? Amen. Any opposed? All right. 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 27 to 35. This is what the Spirit says. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that, is, that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men, 
And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word seeking to hear your voice and receive your truth. And in our hearts we say to you, speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If anyone is going to know God and have a right relationship with God, there are three fundamental things that are needed. Three things we can't give to ourselves. Three things we actually need from God. First, we need God's revelation. We need God to reveal Himself to us because, you see, we can't go out and find Him. We can't deduce Him from what we see around us. We can't figure out His character based on our best and highest thoughts. He, he, he is above us. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. He dwells in unapproachable light. So we need God's revelation. Secondly, we need God's reconciliation. You see, mankind is at odds with God by nature and by choice. We have separated ourselves from Him, broken the relationship with Him in our sin, and we can't fix it. There is no how-to video on YouTube that will show you how to fix what is broken here. The third thing we need to live in right relationship with God is actually God's rule. We need to live under His authority. You see, we can't just trust our instincts or go with our gut or trust our heart when it comes to living in right relationship with God. We need to listen to Him and to obey Him. He made us. He knows us. He is all wise. You see, in some relationships, um, uh, that would sound silly, right? Because in most relationships, there's kind of a give and take, isn't there? You know, when you're growing up and all the kids in the neighborhood are getting together to decide what we're going to do. Uh, well, last, last week I said we would play wiffle ball, uh, so we played wiffle ball. But this week, you decide what we'll do, and then we'll do it. And you just kind of share the responsibility. That's not how you are, how anybody is in right relationship with God. God never says, hey, look, whatever you want to do, that's what we're going to do today. All right? That's not what he does. We need his authoritative word in our ears, in our hearts, lived out in our lives. So we need God's revelation of himself, we need God's reconciliation, and we need God's rule. And all three of these are actually pictured in key positions in the nation of Israel. God's revelation in the prophets, God's reconciliation in priests, and God's rule represented in the kings. Prophets, priests, and kings, all necessary 
to live in right relationship with God. But none of the Old Testament prophets and none of the Old Testament priests and none of the Old Testament kings fully accomplish what we need. They all point us somewhere. As it were, every single person, that, every single man that, that filled that position was a promise, a visual promise of one who was to come of a better prophet, of a better priest, of a better king. They point us to the promised Savior, Jesus. It's his birth we celebrate this season. You see, the one that Mary holds in her arms, the one that she wraps in swaddling cloths, he is the prophet and the priest and the king that we need so that we can have a right relationship with God. And so last week we thought about The fact that Jesus comes as a prophet, that he reveals God fully and finally, that his spirit was at work before he was ever born, that he was revealing God in his life and ministry, and that even once he ascended to heaven, his spirit continued to reveal God through the apostles. And today, we come to think about the fact that Jesus comes as a priest. And we do that maybe at a starting place you wouldn't have thought of, 1 Samuel chapter 2, a place where we find a priest. A prophet actually comes to this priest. And what unfolds here is not only for him and for, and for the immediate generations to come, it is for us today. And it all centers around the priesthood. So first, what I want us to do as we look at this text is to think about the fact that God established the priesthood. Okay, this prophet comes to Eli, this nameless prophet comes, and he's going to confront Eli about his two sons, and we'll get to that. But before he confronts him, the prophet reminds Eli of some history that he needs to remember. He needs to remember why he's a priest and why the priesthood exists. Look at verse 27. Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Now, we just finished a study in Exodus. So this is, should actually be very fresh territory for many of us because there God rescued His people from slavery in Egypt and He establishes them as a nation. And among all of the people, He sets apart the tribe of Levi to serve as priests, to oversee worship, to act as mediators between God and His people. And as you continue reading, you find there are four basic tasks that the priests have. And many, most of them, three out of the four, are in Deuteronomy 33 as Moses is preparing the people for the promised land. This is what he says of the priests. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. As I said, three out of the four are right there. The first one is that priests are to teach the people. He says, they shall teach Jacob. The priests are meant to make sure that God's people understand God's law. I mean, you find priests doing this as the, as the story of the Old Testament unfolds under the, under the restorations of Jehoshaphat and of Josiah. There are priests going out. And Ezra himself is a priest. 
who teaches the people who have come back from exile. Malachi 2 says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So priests are to teach the people. Priests are also to pray for the people. If you just keep going in that text that's on the screen, they shall put incense before you. That's what that meant. The, the burning of the incense was a picture of the prayers rising into heaven. And the priest comes before God on behalf of the people and he seeks help and he seeks mercy and he seeks wisdom. The third thing we see just in that one verse is that priests make sacrifices for the people. Notice that? Whole burnt offerings on your altar. You see, priests serve sinners. <laughs> and sinners need atonement. They need their sin forgiven. They need to be reconciled to God. That's the priest's work. So the animals would be sacrificed and the priest would apply the blood of those animals as God instructs and atonement would be made. Now the fourth duty of the priest isn't in, isn't in that one verse, but it comes up a lot actually in the book of Numbers. Listen to Numbers 18. They shall join you, this is God speaking to Aaron about uh, his household. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of the meeting, of meeting and you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar that there may never again be wrath on the people of God. The last duty of the priest is actually to guard the purity of worship. That's why when you read these things about, you know, there's this skin disease and the priest needs to make sure you're clean before you can come in, he's guarding the purity of that worship. He is the one who makes sure that only those who are clean physically can come in because it's a clean place. Worship is to be a clean place. He's the one who determines whether there's a blemish in this animal or not. He's the one who oversees it and guards it. The priests are basically like a gatekeeper of worship. Now notice the posture of all, those, all four of those things. Priests teach the people. Priests pray for the people. Priests make sacrifices for the people. And priests guard worship. All of those tasks are oriented toward others. The priest does not exist to be served, but to serve. So focused must he be that they don't even get land when they get into the promised land. God says, I'm going to be your inheritance. They don't need to fuss with crops and animals and all those kinds of things and raising them and all of that. All of their time and energy is focused on these tasks, on serving the Lord by serving the Lord's people. And God will provide for them through the people. And that's what Eli's being reminded of here. That God's the one who set this up. That God chose him out of all the tribes of Israel. That God gave him the privilege of going to the altar and burning the incense and wearing the ephod and all those things. And that he did it for the good of his people. Not to exalt the priests, you understand but to serve the people. God established the priesthood. But the second thing that we see in this text is that man corrupted the priesthood. Man corrupted the priesthood. Now, sin affects everything, doesn't it? And sin's corruption reaches everywhere. There's no segment of human society where sin's black, sneaky, 
dark, awful fingers don't reach. Whether you are the lowest part of society or whether you are the highest part of society, whether you have authority or don't have authority, no matter what your family looks like, no matter what your background is like, no matter what education you have, there is no realm of society where sin's fingers don't reach and corrupt. But one of the places that it is significantly heinous is when there's corruption in leadership. Why? Because corruption in leadership just doesn't stay with just the one person. It goes to those, it corrupts all that they're doing. We know that today, don't we? Leaders in civil government corrupted by sin. Leaders of businesses corrupted by sin. Leaders in religious life corrupted by sin. Do you want to know one of the reasons that you ought to be faithfully praying for your elders? Because if sin corrupts there, it doesn't just stay there. It affects everything. The, the, the church that I served in Marion as, uh, as a youth pastor, it was, it was discovered that the pastor was corrupt in a couple of different very significant areas of sin and he had to resign and I can tell you that today today almost 20 years later things still aren't quite what they were now those of you who have been here the longest know that we walk through similar things I wasn't here but we walked through similar things didn't we God has been very merciful because typically when that, 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 that kind of corruption in, in, in a pastor, in the elders, will often lead to the ultimate extinguishing of a congregation. And so this is significant. It's, it's very often, isn't it, that the corruptions in leadership are the ones that make the big headlines. They're the ones that gain the most attention. Why? Because they affect the most people. And so here are these two leaders, three really when you count Eli because he is not free of uh, the, the corruption. But Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, have corrupted the priesthood. We're not going to read verses 12 to 17, but you can mark them if you'd like and go back to them because there you'll find that they were greedy. They were provided certain things from the offering, but that wasn't good enough. They wanted what the family should have been able to keep. In fact, they wanted what was reserved for the Lord only. They served them themselves. And then in verse 22, listen to this. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Their sexual sin is on the front page of every newspaper in Israel. If you don't know what a newspaper is, just Google it. There's these ancient relics that used to carry news from one place to another in written form. In other words, what Hophni and Phinehas have done is change the posture of priesthood from serving others to serving themselves. And that 
is one of the greater corruptions, is when leaders no longer see themselves as servants of others, but as servants of themselves. When men and women in various parts of leadership are only looking out for number one, when they're only concerned about protecting themselves, when they're only concerned about getting reelected, when they're only concerned about maintaining power and position in the company, even if it means lying, even if it means stealing, even if it means compromising what I've held to for so many years, whatever I have to do to maintain this position and keep this power, I will do it because this position serves me. But just to make it a little more heinous, I'll make it sound like I just really want to keep serving you. And God will not abide such men in the priesthood. He will not abide that kind of person in leadership. In Ezekiel 34, the word of the Lord comes. This is beginning in verse 1. Just, you can just jot it down and look at it yourself later. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. What's interesting is just a few verses later, God says, there are no shepherds for my people. But what did he just call them about four times? Shepherds. They were shepherds in name only. A shepherd is a shepherd in name only when he wants to eat the sheep and have the sheep feed his own ego and have the sheep feed his own position, his own platform. This is humongous in the church right now that every pastor, I say every, it's an exaggeration to make a point. Every pastor just wants a platform. Give me a platform of some kind. Shepherds who aren't really shepherds at all, eating the sheep. Priests who aren't priests at all, serving themselves. And God will not tolerate it. So now, before we go on, do you have a position of leadership at all over anyone else? Over others in your company? Over children in your home? Are you the boss somewhere? Are you the person who's supposed to lead out somewhere? Remember Hophni and Phinehas. God has not entrusted you with that leadership for your sake, but for His glory and for the good of others. You think about all the really bad managers you've had in your life, all right? Were they out for you? No. No. If anything, you felt used to serve their agenda. 
So God is sending this prophet Eli and telling him his house is going to be removed. His house is no longer going to serve in the priesthood. And his two sons are going to die on the same day. Now, Hophni and Phinehas are not the first corrupt priests in Israel. In fact, all you have to do is tap into that memory of Exodus to remember the first corrupt priest. Remember him? Aaron? Remember how he led the people into idolatry? And then his boys were no better. Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus chapter 10, they burn unauthorized incense. The corruption didn't start with them and it didn't finish with them. This became a perennial problem in the nation of Israel so that Micah speaks to it and Jeremiah speaks to it and Zephaniah speaks to it. And then Ezekiel says, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. The priesthood has been corrupted. Why? Because sinners occupy that position. They're supposed to be agents of reconciliation, but they need the reconciliation themselves. So in essence, the one who should bring the best reconciliation, the one that is only focused on the reconciliation of others, no human priest could do it, could they? They could not be the priest that God wanted them to be. It's corrupted. And so thirdly, God provides a better priest. He announces judgment, the prophet does, and then he announces the promise. Verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So he says a couple of things about this priest that is promised. First, that he will be faithful. He's going to be reliable. He's going to be trustworthy. He's going to actually do according to what's in the mind and heart of the Lord. This is not the kind of priest we have right now. That's the priest who's coming. And then he's also going to be permanent. He's going to have a sure house. He's going to go in and out forever. The priest will not be removed. Now, when it comes to Old Testament prophecy like this, this kind of promise, there is often... There are often short-term fulfillment or fulfillments, plural, and then a final and full long-term fulfillment. So if you think of this 1 Samuel 2.35 like the bud of a flower, all right? Some of you, as soon as it hit 40 degrees, you were already begging for spring to come, all right? And, and, and shame on you. We need winter. All right, so there's a bud, and then... What happens? The bud begins to open, and you start to see what, what that bud will produce, but then eventually there's the fullness of the flower, right? So what we have in 1 Samuel 2 is the bud of the flower, and the slight opening of that flower comes in 1 Kings chapter 2, when the last of Eli's house is removed from the priesthood by Solomon. He's a man named Abiathar. And he's replaced later in that chapter by Zadok. So this is the beginning of that fulfillment. But the full blossom of a priest who is faithful and permanent doesn't come until it comes in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the priest. He is the faithful priest. Hebrews 2 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every, respect, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
He's a permanent priest. Hebrews 7 says that they, all those other priests, were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He is both faithful and permanent. You see, one of the things that actually sets Jesus apart from every other priest, apart from the fact that he's those things, is he's not from the tribe of Levi. Now, at some point in your life, I wonder if you ever raised your hand and asked that question. How come he can be a priest if he's not even part of the tribe of Levi? He's part of the tribe of Judah. Well, that's true. But the priestly order that Jesus is part of is not from Levi or Aaron at all. Listen to Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, the Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's quoted a number of times in the book of Hebrews. Melchizedek is this very obscure, mysterious uh, 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 character in the book of Genesis. He, kind of, he just appears and he goes out and then you just don't see him again. He's like Tom Bombadil, right? I mean, that's, that's, if you know the Lord of the Rings, just go back and read the first book and he's basically Tom Bombadil. I mean, he just shows up and you don't really know what he's doing or why he's doing anything he's doing and he's gone. But what the Bible tells us is that this is the line that Jesus is going to come from. And what's interesting in that Genesis 4, 14 account is that Melchizedek blesses Abraham and receives tithes from Abraham. And Hebrews 7 explains that the only way that that's possible for Melchizedek to bless Abraham is that he was greater than Abraham because that's how blessing works. The superior blesses the inferior. He's greater than Abraham. As a priest... And this is the line that Jesus is going to come from. Jesus is the one who is ultimately superior, not just to Melchizedek, but to Abraham, to all. He is the better priest. Think about those priestly duties. Jesus is the one who teaches his people. He comes preaching and teaching and in the Sermon on the Mount what does he do but explain the fullness the fullness of God's law its full reach its full meaning Jesus is the one who guards the purity of worship do you remember the day Jesus goes into the temple and they had changed a place of prayer into a place of profit what does he do he turns over the tables and he drives them out. Why? Because he is the better priest who safeguards the worship of God. Jesus is also the priest who prays for his people. Now here's the thing. Look, I, I, I actually was thinking just this morning about men and women in our congregation in the last 13 years that I knew, I knew that if they knew you needed prayer, you could take it to the bank with them. And they are now with the Lord. Their prayer ministry is over. Even the greatest intercessors among the priests and among our family and in our congregation, the prayer ministry will come to an end, but not so with Jesus. 
Jesus prayed for his disciples while he was here. He prayed for both them and us just before he died. And even now, he prays for us. Listen to Romans 8. Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Doesn't that strengthen your soul to know that the Son of God, even now, as you're hearing his word, is praying for you, interceding for you? Burkhoff wrote, uh, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers, and that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us though we do not notice it. He is praying our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Friend, of all of the prayers that are prayed for you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be confident that the prayers of Jesus are heard by the Father. You can be confident that the prayers of Jesus perfectly align with God's will because He is God, that the prayers of Jesus will not go unanswered for you. And his priority in praying for us is so often so different than our priority in praying for us, isn't it? Now, the, the fact of the matter is, is that God sometimes is merciful and he brings relief to our lives and he produce, pr- brings restoration to our souls, but that is not Jesus' greatest priority. I mean, even when he was here, there were times he left without healing everybody. His goal was never the physical body in this world. His priority is so much bigger. His priority is not that our lives will be free of disruption, free of distraction, free of difficulty, free of even disaster. His priority is that you will make it home and you will be conformed to his image. And your faith will not fail in the end because his prayers are sustaining it, even at this moment, even at moments when you struggle to maintain it, even at moments when you are struggling with doubt. The Lord Jesus Christ, if you are his and you are in his hand, he is praying that your faith will not fail. And friend, it won't. All those, he said, all those that the Father gives me, I will surely bring. All of them, every single one of them. Not one will be lost. No, he will turn out no one who comes to him by faith. None, 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 none. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, he is praying for you even now. And friend, because he is praying for you and his spirit is in you and his blood is applied to you, you will make it home. And you can have hope until you get there. Jesus is the better priest. And Jesus is the priest who makes atonement for his people. Unlike every other priest, Jesus did not have to make atonement for his own sins before making atonement for ours because he is sinless. We do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but yet is without sin. 
And what is unique about the work of Jesus is that Jesus is not simply the, pri the priest who brings the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice who is brought. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So his sacrifice is actually superior to the sacrifices of all the other priests that have come before him. It is superior because he is the only true substitute. You see, all the other priests brought bulls and goats and lambs, and, and, and they were spotless. No, you know, don't doubt that. They were spotless, but animals can never truly be substitute for a human being. Only a spotless man could take our place. And Peter says that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He is the sacrifice. His, his sacrifice is also superior because it's sufficient. You see, this, the, 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 the high priest had to go in every year with this, same, with this same blood on the Day of Atonement over and over and over and over again. And he would go behind a veil and apply the blood. And then he would come out. And the next year, you know what he'd do? He'd go behind the veil and do it again. And he'd go behind the veil and he'd go behind the veil and he'd go behind the veil to sprinkle the blood and to appease God's wrath. But Jesus dies once and for all. Amen. Hebrews 9, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And really there are two indicators about the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. One actually happens when he dies. Because he doesn't merely go behind the veil. His sacrifice rips the veil from top to bottom opening the way for human beings to actually exist and not be crushed by the presence of God. To actually have entrance. So his, his sacrifice is superior because it ripped the, the veil, but his, the second way we know and the greatest way we know that his sacrifice is sufficient is that God raised him from the dead. Jesus didn't just say it is finished. The, the resurrection is like an echo of those words on the cross. Jesus says it is finished, and God publicly says with him, it is finished. He is raised from the dead. There is no more sacrifice to be made. There is no more blood to be shed for sin. He has done it all. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left for you to pay. That's why I asked you at the beginning whether all your trust is in the blood of Jesus. Because if you think what you need to do is trust in Jesus and do some other stuff, you ain't got Jesus. Jesus is an all or nothing Savior. He's not a life coach, you see, who does some of it for you, and then you, carry a, you, you pick up the buckets and take them the rest of the way. He doesn't run the ball for you, as it were, all the way to the one-yard line and then hand it to you and say, hey, go ahead and make the rest. You wouldn't make it across the goal line. He has done it 
all complete atonement you have made and by your death have fully paid the debt your people owed so that no wrath remains. That is really difficult for the human mind to comprehend because you know yourself, don't you? And I know myself. But if we know Jesus, no wrath remains. His sacrifice is greater. His sacrifices accomplishes such wonderful things. Things like, you may not even know this word. Maybe you will. Expiation. You ever heard that word? Expiation. It basically means to completely eliminate the guilt. He has wiped our slate clean. He has forgiven us. John calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But not just expiation, propitiation, which means that he has satisfied God's wrath against us. God is not simply bugged when you sin and I sin. God is, you know, some people will say, well, I'm not really angry at you, I'm just disappointed. God is not merely disappointed that we sin. Psalm 7 says he is angry at sin every day. Wrath is what is stirred up. The wrath of God is stirred up against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. But as Jesus dies on the cross, he is the one who bears the wrath of God in our place. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. Expiation, propitiation, reconciliation. The war is over. Those who trust in Christ are at peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Uh, Paul writes in Colossians that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross and then redemption he has bought us freedom from slavery to sin he has purchased our souls for himself the son of man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many Expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption. This is the only priest that matters. I think I said this a month or two ago. I don't remember. I could have said it yesterday and I wouldn't have remembered. But your, your Roman Catholic friends are right you do need a priest. But the only priest you need is Jesus Christ. If you won't have him as your priest, you will have no priest. I read an article just this week uh, from a man who uh, takes the label of pastoral counselor and, and what he dared to say was that the clinical setting is now the church. 
and that the therapists are now the priests because people go to them to unload the burdens of life. People go to them to try to get free of guilt. People go to them to bring change that they want. There is no priest but Jesus. No matter how good or how helpful you think that other conversation is, there is nothing anyone can offer you for the guilt of your soul, for the plight of your eternity, other than Jesus Christ. Not Jesus plus, not Jesus minus, Jesus. He is the priest that your soul needs. You have no entrance with God without him. You have no forgiveness of sin without him. You have no freedom from guilt without him. And the question that you have to ask is, do you, do you want your slate to be wiped clean? Do you want your sin to be forgiven? Do you want your guilt to be removed? Do you want to be free from the fear of punishment that awaits on the last day? Do you want to be free from sin? Do you want to have peace with God? If so, friends, there is a priest, a merciful and faithful high priest who has not simply made the sacrifice of something else, but has laid himself down to die for you. And he will reconcile you to God if you will come to him by faith. If you confess your need of him, your sinfulness that needs to be forgiveness, if you will seek mercy from him, he is the promised priest. He is the promised Savior. If your soul this morning will sing with sincerity, Jesus, all my trust is in your blood. Then you'll be able to sing the next line. Jesus, you've rescued us through your great love. What a Savior the Lord has sent in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you feeling once again and knowing once again our own hopelessness apart from your intervention in our lives. We thank you for the promises of the Old Testament and the places and the people and all, all the pictures that are there that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful that in the coming of Jesus, you have kept the promise you made through this unnamed prophet, that he is our faithful priest. He is our permanent priest. Lord, I pray for those who have no priest even now, that you would open up eyes to see and love and go to Jesus Christ, the great high priest who has bought our liberty. Thank you, Lord, that all that needs to be done has been done in him. And we pray in his name. Amen.